This is number one of 10 and 10. From the weeks now, from each week on, the next nine weeks after this, we're going to sit with one of the, the commands, the 10 commands, the 10 words as they're often called. And uh, last week we had an overview. We looked at Jesus, how he summarized the 10 commandments, why, why he considered them to be so important. Um, we talked about how the commands themselves, the one through 10, we talked about how one through four really have to do with a, a vertical uh, relationship with God. The first four commands focus on our relationship with God. The, the, second, the, five, the second piece, five through 10, tend to be more horizontal, and they focus more on, on the uh, relationships that we have with other people. And so, so the, the, together, Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In fact, we just put this up real quick. He was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? And uh, the answer that he gave was that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he quotes, he quotes from the scripture. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Listen, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It was the Shema that he was quoting, the hearing. They would have all been familiar with it. Jesus affirms it says it's the beginning place, second like unto this, that you love your neighbor as yourself. So hear me out. We talked about how last week also how we approach something, especially in the Bible, makes a difference. Talked about the difference, you know, it's like reading the Bible as a lawyer would read a will or as an heir would read the will. When we have an investment in it, when there's a, a sense that this is something for me in this, that there, there's a part of me that's really connected in a much more significant way. And I'm hoping that's how we're going to approach this. I want us to begin by looking backwards. Look at where, where the first words were given. Exodus 19, verse 20, says this, and this is in the handout. The Lord came down on the top of Mount Sinai and called, called Moses to the top of the mountain. And so Moses climbed the mountain. We talked about this. And God spoke all these words to him, saying, I am the Lord your God. I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the uh, house of bondage, the place of slavery. You were not a free people. I've made you free. I've drawn you with my own hand. I've brought you out to bring you to. You see that? I brought you out to bring you to me. And part of what, we're, what we were meant to be, he says, my people, was we were meant to be in relationship. And so I want to give you my words, words that if you will embrace them and, and live into them, will be to you a stream of life and blessing that will cause you to be able to, to endure. Even though you are the least, I will cause you to endure and out of you will come uh, something that the world ha could never, ever have conceived. Will come not only a savior, but a people. And, and we're a part of that promise. And, it's, and so the Ten Commands, even though they oftentimes are you know, characterized in a negative fashion, actually um, are given for blessing. And so um, when we keep that in mind, it, I think it's helpful. Jesus clearly saw them in that way. Uh, I put a, a couple of quotes in your handout. I may not get to the second one. I certainly want to look at the first one. And this is actually from, from a um, book that was called Basic Christianity that I first was exposed to when I was just a young follower of the Lord. And uh, this book is great. It's a little book. Some of you, if you've never read it, I highly recommend it. It's uh, got a, one of the chapters is completely devoted to the Ten Commands. And uh, this amazing uh, scholar, uh, Stott talks about what it means to love God. I just put this in there because I think it's helpful. We say, you know, love God, put God first. In fact, when we say, when the Lord says, you will have no other gods before me, I mean, part of, the, literally that is translated, put no other gods before my face. That there is, not, there is to be nothing in front of me. That, that, that I want to be the first place in your life. 
And so sometimes we talk about loving God, putting God first. What does that actually mean? Stott talks about that. Let's look at this together. He says, for us, this commandment would be to keep it. As Jesus said, to love our, the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. And then he says this, and what that means is this, to make his will our guide and his glory our goal, right? To put him first in thought, in word, and in deed. Now that, that, that's a lot easier said than done. That means the first in thought, in word, in deed, and listen, he says, and in business, and in our leisure, when we're at work, when we're at, when we're at home and recreating, um, to, to place the Lord in a preeminent position in our friendships and in our career, in, in the use of our money, and how we make decisions with that, our time, our talents, essentially even our work and certainly at home. I mean, he's basically saying is to, follow, to honor this command is to integrate our relationship with the Lord into every aspect of our life. This is, a, this is a commandment about integration. It's about not simply sequestering the Lord off to an hour a week and then disregarding him in our thoughts and in our affections the rest of the week. It's a, it's a reminder that God wants his people to live in relationship with him all through their, all through their lives, all through their day, all, all of our lives, all of our days. And, and that's going to affect how we talk, it's going to affect how we make our decisions. It's going to affect the way we live our lives. It's going to affect what we're okay with. It's going to affect how we make decisions about our future. If we love the Lord, it's going to, that relationship, which will flourish as we invest ourselves into his words, will affect every aspect of our life. It was meant to, to affect us in real ways. That's the point. Now, what I want to do, and I'm going to do this actually for the next two weeks, because I think we're, we're on a learning journey together, and I'm hoping that's part of what will happen as well. But what I was hoping to do, and what I'd like to do, is take uh, this Old Testament teaching and, and integrate it with a, um, a portion of Scripture that is a New Testament teaching that is from uh, one of my most favorite passages in, in the New Testament. It has to do with an exchange that occurred between the Apostle Paul and uh, the, uh, a group of philosophers it's, called the Mar it's often called the Mars Hill Incident. And this particular exchange is perfectly connected. When we interface the first command with what happens with the Apostle Paul when he goes to Athens, it becomes this really uh, enlightening and illuminating thing for us. And it will have a bearing also on next week as well. So what I want to do is just jump right into that. I wanna, again, I want to look at this 17th chapter of Acts and sort of take this command and move, bring them together and pull something out of it. So let's jump in right here. Acts 17, verse 16. This is also in the handout. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled. Who was them? Them would have been Silas, his, his partner, and young Timothy, uh, who was an apprentice of sorts. He was waiting for them to arrive. While he was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols that he saw everywhere in the city. Now, what the Bible says is he was <laughs> overwhelmed at an emotional level because he had arrived ahead of them, ahead of his partners. You know, Paul himself had an amazing story. I think a lot of us know that, um, but I don't want to assume that everyone does. Paul, who becomes the great apostle and the, uh, the architect of so much of, of the New Testament church, was the first true persecutor of, of the way of Christ. Uh, he was anything but a believer. 
He was a, not only a disbeliever in Jesus, he was a hostile and aggressive and violent man by his own confession. He says, I was you know, breathing out threatenings and slaughterings. I mean, it was, his heart was extraordinarily opposed to Christ. He despised Jesus. And it makes the, the, what happens to him on the road to Damascus all the more remarkable because he says that he was confronted by the living Christ and it altered his life. And he went from being the primary persecutor of the early church to becoming one who is known as the, the great apostle to the Gentiles. That is, he takes this message of Jesus that previously he had despised and he begins to take it to the corners of the Gentile, the Greco-Roman world. And he, one of the places he wanted to go was Athens. Athens at the time, AD 50, was, although you know, not what it was in the heyday of the Greek Empire, was nonetheless <laughs> an extraordinarily amazing and influential city. It was considered by a lot of people the university seat of the uh, Greco-Roman world. I mean, it was the place of the, the historical city of the great Greek philosophers, you know, Pericles, Demosthenes, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. I mean, they, they, in Paul's day, the men of Athens still talked vigorously about politics, about philosophy, and certainly about religion and poetry and art. It was to fill with the humanities. In fact, they would, they, one of the writers uh, suggested that they would talk about anything and everything. They loved to discuss new ideas. And so this was a city that Paul was uh, obviously very attracted to. He wanted to bring Jesus, the message of Christ, to this city. And when he came to Athens, while he was awaiting his team to arrive, he was stunned. He was overwhelmed at a visceral level. Now remember, Paul was, not, Paul was raised as a Pharisee. He was trained under, in his day, what would have been the preeminent scholar of his day, a, ma a man named Gamaliel. Paul was not an intellectual lightweight. He was not someone who had grown up sequestered. Many of the apostles, and I, and I don't mean to take, many of the apostles were, were, were working men, and that is great. The disciples of Jesus were, were men, uh, like Peter, a fisherman. Paul was someone who was actually highly lettered. He was someone who had been exposed to big ideas. He had been trained himself in rhetoric. There, this was a highly skilled man. He's going into a place where people are operating at a high intellectual level, and he's wanting to bring Christ, the message of Jesus, in all of its simplicity and wisdom into this environment, in this context. And so as he's there, but he's struck. He is literally, it says, stricken at a deep level by what he sees. He's waiting for his team, and he begins to go, you know, again, Paul was not someone who had been unexposed to ideas. Let me just put up a quick map. He, he grew up in a place called Tarsus. Tarsus, if you see the Mediterranean Sea right there, see where Jerusalem is, you see where Athens is, then you see Tarsus. Paul was uh, near the coast, near, the, near the, co the coastal town. It was a town that would have been exposed to uh, a large worldview. It was cosmopolitan, essentially. So he was not this, this isolated guy growing up back in the backwoods, sort of kept away from society, you know, only immersed in his own culture, his own, his own sort of uh, teachings out of the Older Testament. And he was someone who had seen a lot of other things, although he was an intensely committed believer in, in God, the God of Israel at the time. That did not prepare him for what he saw when he got to Athens. When he gets to Athens, he is overwhelmed by what he says here is uh, the idolatry or just idols that he saw everywhere in the city. I mean, it struck a huge chord in it. There were idols everywhere. One of the historians 
Petronius, and you know, after a while, Petronius, which they all start to sound the same, I suppose, you know, the names. But Petronius said this, that there were, he says, you could actually see that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. He said, he said that there were so many eyes, and the reason for it is, he said, each, the, the historian said that each gateway and each porch had its protecting God. And so you, you have this, you know, the, it says that, he said that the streets were lined with idols. Paul is walking. It'd be like him going into one of the primary neighborhoods of our city, and he's just kind of walking around trying to take it in. He's just arrived. He's watching what's happening. He, he, he believes God asked him to come to this city to share this message of Christ. And he's walking. He's just overwhelmed. I mean, instead of seeing this kind of, you know, uh, quasi-spiritual, philosophical mecca, he, he sees instead of it, which is anything to him but enlightening. He, see, he sees in it more of a, a kind of a superstitious haze that is, that is, is uh, he, he feels, even in the midst of it all, he feels there is a spiritual darkness. And his heart is provoked. And so what we see here that he does something. Look what he does. It says that um, he went to the synagogue, verse 17, and this is what he frequently would do. He would go to the place where Jewish uh, the Jews gathered to worship God, and he would talk about the Messiah. And he would talk about this with the Jewish people as well as who gathered in the synagogue as who were his brethren. Um, and these, you know, by, by his past and upbringing and his identity. And then also to the Gentile converts who had associated there as well, which were usually, there were, there were many of them. And they were often even more receptive to the message that, of Jesus being the fulfillment of the promise that was given. And so he goes there first, and he talks about the Lord. But then he feels compelled to do something else, and we're given this bit of information. Look at it. What does it say he does? It says that he makes a decision to go daily. For a day, on Every day, he makes his way to what we would call the marketplace, the civic center, the agora. And he goes there, and he goes there for one purpose, to get in discussions and to get in conversation. So Paul goes to the public square and he begins to engage people in conversations about the Lord. And we're told specifically what he starts to engage them around. It says that he, he also began to debate uh, with certain groups. Um, we're told here that one of the, there are two groups that are named. Um, we may, some of us may recognize these words. One, one of the groups were the, what were the group called the Epicureans and the other was Stoics. They were two rival schools of philosophy and this is going to sound simplistic, but essentially what they, what they each advocated was a different philosophy of life. Uh, the Stoics were named not after their, their teacher, uh, Zeno. Uh, they, were, they were not named after him. They were actually named after the place where he shared, which was the, known as the porch in the Greek stoa. Hence, those who adhered to the philosophy of Zeno ultimately um, were called Stoics because he was identified with the porch which was known as Stoa. The Stoics were an interesting group because they uh, advocated a philosophy that was very appealing, particularly to the Roman class, the Roman military class. Stoics, and some of us know that word, we hear that word used today, someone says, well, they're very Stoic. I mean, it had to, they, they believed in self-mastery, self-sufficiency. Uh, they, they tended to be very austere and hard. Uh, they did not allow feelings in. There was, there was frequently um, a feeling of pride in my own capacity to handle anything that came my way. And so this group had, had a certain uh, appeal. 
and you know, I often think that you know, it's still real today. I mean, some of us, they, 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 you know, and, and by the way, that, that is contrary to, at least in part, to what the Lord wants us to be. I, I know some of us have, have, I'm not saying we're not supposed to have some degree of self-discipline and self-mastery. I'm a big believer in that. But I'll tell you this, the Lord wants us also to be real and vulnerable people. I look at Jesus, who is our great example. He was a man acquainted with grief and sorrow. He was able to cry at a loss. Um, he, he was a man who wept. He laughed. He was real. He was vulnerable. He gave himself. He was hurt. He, he was hurtable. He was vulnerable. One of the things the Lord will do, I know some of us, we come, and I was talking with, this, with someone after service, we, we come a lot of times to the Lord, or at least we begin to draw closer. We've been coming to church maybe, but we've been hurt. And so one of the ways that we can deal with that is to build a wall. And we say, no one's getting past this wall because you know what? I'm not going to be hurt again. And so I won't feel. I won't acknowledge those feelings. And part, a lot of times, one of the real discoveries that begins to become connected to following Jesus in a growing life in God is that, that freedom to begin to start opening my heart up again and being vulnerable at some level in ways that I have previously not allowed myself to be Sometimes because of the wounds of life. In, the, in their case, it had to do with a sense of pride and self-sufficiency and I feel nothing. I can handle everything. I don't need God. What are they? See, so I, I, I really think the Lord wants to, for some of us, uh, part of our journey with him is going to be letting go and being more open. And yes, there is a risk there. I get that. But we cannot receive the love of God without risking vulnerability. Hear what I'm saying? Is there's a reason Jesus said, if any of us want to come into his kingdom's reality, we must come, listen, what did he say? Not with the heart of a Roman stoic, but with the heart of a child. And that's interesting to me, because Jesus said, what is a child? There's vulnerable, they can be hurt, but it's open. It's free to wonder and believe again. There's something about that, that simplicity, that beauty, that majesty of a little one's faith. So, Stoics, self-mastery. The other group that was there was, what were they called? The Epicureans. The Epicureans, you know, they had this belief, this quasi-belief in maybe the existence of some gods, but they said those gods are irrelevant to real life. They have nothing to do with it. What is really, in fact, they said there's no future. You know, future lives, this is only life there is. Therefore... If a person will wants to do what they should do, the real goal of life should be to pursue, since this is it, pleasure at all costs, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It, and again, I am reducing these two philosophies to simplistic terms, but you can see how they one, one group was actually in competition with the other. Paul walks into this environment, and he engages them in debate. And his whole goal is to begin to talk to them. We're told here, look at this. It says that he wants to talk to them. It says when he told them about Jesus and the resurrection. So he walks into this place where ideas are free-flowing, where people have many concepts of spirituality and philosophical perspectives, religious ideas. They borrow synchronistically from other religions, mix them together. There's this... There's this really interesting environment that he's finding himself moving into. And he gets into this place and he starts debating them and he starts talking to them. Let me tell you about Jesus. And not only does he preach to them about Jesus and how he is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Israel through, a, through when he called out a man named Abram. And out of that man, said he gave him a promise that if he would walk by faith, he would bring forth a nation. And that nation 
he said, would be, have descendants like the stars in the sky and, and the, the, the sands, the grains of the sand. It would fill the earth. And he says, and God fulfilled that promise and made them a people. And out of that people, he brought forth a Savior. And that Savior, that Messiah, is the one I declare to you. His name is Jesus. And Jesus has come. God's very Son has come. to give, He gave his life away so that you, we, you and I, may have life in him. But not only did he die in our place um, to bear the sins as a, like a smitten lamb, carrying all that, we, all that we had of our guilt, he says, but that same Savior, he, Paul says, rose again. And because he lives, we also can live. And this is a great promise that God has given. And Paul starts to contend for the message of Christ. He begins to talk to them. And many of them, uh, their initial reaction is to laugh him to scorn. Look at what they say. It says, what, 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 this is meant as a derisive term. What's this babbler? What's this babbler trying to say with these, these strange ideas he's picked up. Now, the word babbler there actually means literally seed picker. And the idea was that they are saying, and it was meant derisively, it was kind of like a slang of their day. It's saying like, you're like a little bird hopping in the marketplace and you've got like seeds and stuff hanging out of your mouth, ideas you've picked up from who knows where. And you're walking around saying, listen to this, listen to that. And they say, what are you talking about? You're just like a babbler. It was like, you're, a, you're an intellectual lightweight. We've got nothing. We don't want to listen to you anymore. But that, it says that there were others though that said what? said, you know what? We, we'd like to hear more about what you have to say. Would you be interested in having an additional conversation around this? We'd like to take you to a place where this takes place. This is a place, the Areopagus, a place called Mars Hill, where a council gathers together to debate. Would you be willing to make your case? Yes, I would. Look what happens. It says that then they took him to the high council of the city. Now, I'll just show you a quick picture. You can still see Mars Hill today. Um, it's, in fact, it, there's a plaque there now um, that you can actually read the entire message that Paul shares on Mars Hill. It says they took him up there and they met, they met with him there. And look what it says. It says they said, come and tell us everything about this uh, new teaching. Um, you, because you are saying some really strange things. And we really have a desire to know what this is all about. And then we're told parenthetically in verse 21, it should be explained that the Athenians as well as the foreigners in Athens seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. They love to talk about new ideas and trends and, and different concepts and theories. And, and uh, there was this you know, sort of gathering place of ideas that Paul was entering into. And so he, he comes there and he begins to talk to them about, about the Lord. And there's this amazing exchange that occurs. He, he's, uh, it's, it's been fascinating for people for, uh, who study how to talk about Jesus in environments that are initially resistant to look at what happens and how pa the Apostle Paul begins to make his move. Because what he does is he seeks out an opening. He wants to establish a beachhead out of which he can make the case for Christ, at least get into the conversation. He realizes that there needs to be some avenue of opening. Otherwise, there, if without the breach, there's no way to move forward. And so what he does, and it's, it's, a, I, I, it's, it's actually quite brilliant. I personally believe the Lord showed him how to talk. But look what happens here. It says that Paul was standing before the council, and he addressed them as follows. He said, listen, thank you, obviously, for letting me have this opportunity to share with you, men of Athens. I notice that you are very religious in, in every way. There's no questioning your re religiosity. Um, again, a city... Um, not unlike ours, uh, maxed with, with all kinds of different concepts. Superstitious, very spiritual, Paul says, 
I get that everywhere I go. I see evidences of your spirituality. He says this, um, and I was actually walking along the streets, and I was moving past one of, as you know, the many shrines that fill the streets. And he says, and I noticed that there was one. There was one shrine that um, it caught my attention, and, and I actually want to talk to you about it. He goes, it was a shrine that was made to a god, and it was called the Shrine to the Unknown God. You see, the Athenians were, were very concerned that they would have left some god out. So they made a shrine in their conscientiousness, um, wanting to acknowledge the possibility that there was something that they had missed. They said, we will have a shrine to the unknown god just in case, and that will be a catch-all for anything that we may have missed. And Paul says, may I? I've come to tell you about this unknown God that you worship, but you do not know that you do. And he says, this unknown God, I want to declare him to you. And he begins to declare to them the living God who gave his son. Look what it says here. It says, he is the God who made the world. He made everything in it. He's the first cause, the originator. And since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. Buildings cannot contain him. Certainly a shrine or an image can never reveal him. And human hands, they, they really cannot serve his needs, not adequately, for he has no needs. Why? He himself gives life and breath to everything. He satisfies every true need. This is Paul's case. We're going to talk more about this in, next week. I'm going to pick up with this narrative. I, I want to say this because it really, Paul makes the case. See, Jesus said, love the Lord your God. Paul says, there is a one true and living God. We enter, when we put these two things together, what does it teach us? Let me, let me just have us sit with this as we, as we take this in, in a slightly different direction. Putting together what, what Paul has just declared about the living God, about the God who has come to meet us, the God who invites us to love him as Jesus taught us, the God who has revealed himself in his son, um, the, the, the God that we were told way back earlier in the, in the first command to love, with, to, love to, to serve in a, in a prior, priority place in our lives. Let's start with this, that this command, this first command presupposes God's reality and existence. And there's no way around it. Obviously, in the, well, the Bible says this in Psalm 14, 1. It says that the fool has said in their heart there is no God. And no matter how brilliant someone may be, no matter how enlightened or intelligent someone may be, if they say there is no God, then, then they have at some level um, missed the, the greatest reality that there is. That's what Jesus teaches us. In Hebrews 11, verse 6, we looked at this last week, we were told that without faith it is impossible to please God. Notice this, you guys. Because the person who comes to God must first, what? Believe that God is, that he is. And two, listen, that he can be known, that he is a rewarder of those who actually would seek after him. Paul's going to talk about this later in Acts 17 as he shares with these, these intellectuals on Mars Hill about this message of Christ. You know, again, I look at what's going on in, in so much of our society. I'm reminded of the fact that um, much of what is called wisdom today disregards God. But the apostle went on to say this in 1 Corinthians 1.20. I just put this up there for all of us to just think about. In fact, 1 Corinthians 1, along with Romans 1, are very important chapters in the Bible when it comes to, to telling us who God is. Paul writes this. He says, where is the wise? Truly. Again, Paul writing not as someone untrained. He himself extraordinarily trained. More than capable of holding his own rhetorically 
with men and, and, and who had themselves been highly trained rhetorically. He can argue. That's not the point. But he asks this question. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the lawyer? Where is the disputer of this age? Listen, then he makes a statement. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The Bible goes on to say that God's foolishness is wiser than the wisdom of man. That God and his foolishness, and the whole chapter has to do with the Lord being so foolish. Paul's saying God's foolishness was to choose the way of a cross to save this world and to make relationship with the loving God possible. He goes, that sounds like a joke. And remember, he had been ridiculed to scorn. And yet, we know that certain people responded. And the fact is that many of us are here because millions and millions and millions of people have been changed by the reality of Jesus. And, you know, so it's, it's, oh, what's interesting for me is that the West, in many ways, is struggling with a kind of emerging atheism. I mean, I think that's interesting what the Apostle Paul um, talked about. Interesting also that the Pope recently um, has made some controversial statements about, uh, about the reality of God and atheism. And, it kind of, and it's certainly the West is grappling with that. But you know what? In the East, there's still, and, and that is its own stronghold, by the way. We have idols. They're just not made, of hand, made with our own hands. But we have idols as well. But in the East, there's still a lot, in the, a lot of idolatry. Here, here's the second piece. God, the, the Lord says he doesn't want to just be, listen, one of many. He told his people, don't ever reduce me to simply one of many or somehow compart think I can be compartmentalized. Don't do that. The first command teaches us this. You see, why? What was the temptation on Israel's part? I mean, it's as if God says, don't worship me as if I'm like some containable, compartmentalized deity that you can pull um, out of your pocket or set on a platform and use interchangeably with others depending on your mood, whim, or particular need. I'm not like that. Don't ever make me like, uh, like something that you can just like kind of pull out of your pocket and use at a particular time in your life. That's not, I'm not, don't do that. And there's that, you know, and again, I think to put it in another way, I guess I can ask you in the form of a question, are there, are there areas of our life where we are shutting God out of? Because see, this command is, is, the, is the invitation. It is to, to saying, don't, what do I mean by that? I, in other words, we might say, well, I've got like the God part of my life. And then I've got the other parts of my life, maybe my work life, maybe my home life, um, you know, other things. And so, you know, I kind of, you know, God's, he's got his spot. The Lord's, I believe, and he's there. And periodically, when I really need him, I might pull him off the shelf and bring him in here. But really, really, a lot of my life is lived without reference to God. And what the Lord is trying to teach us is he wants to be involved in every aspect, listen, of our lives, um, even the, the, the shameful places. Even if you think of it like a room in a house, and we say, Lord, you're free to come in this house, my heart. But you know, you just that one room, I need you to stay out of that room because you wouldn't be comfortable there, and I really wouldn't be comfortable with you being there either. So we'll just kind of keep you out of that room, but you're free to roam. Every, you know what I'm saying, right? We're free to roam everywhere else because you're my Lord and I love you. But that thing I'm not ready to look at yet, okay? 
And it might mean that some of us never will, we, people, don't, people who are around us who are our friends and neighbors maybe even um, don't even know we love the Lord. They may not even know that we confess Christ as our Savior. People we've worked next to for years, months, years. Maybe part of us feels ashamed, like somehow we can't live up to what we would profess so we will not confess a belief because that would put us in a weakened position because we would feel hypocritical about the way we represent the Lord's heart. Therefore, we will not let it be revealed beyond something more than just a very surface thing. But the Lord wants to teach us to integrate a love for him so that we understand and embrace the fact that we don't get it right all the time. We are continually in need of his grace. We always are. We, but we are growing in our love for God, and we are okay sharing out of even, yes, sometimes our inconsistencies and <laughs> even foolishness but there is a genuineness of love for God that permeates our life and affects our life so the decisions we make, the choices we make, the way in which we live and love and work and perceive our future is not only affected but is impacted by the leaven of truth that is allowed into our heart, this message of the gospel. This is what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of God is like leaven. It will permeate like leaven in the bread. It will permeate a life. It will go everywhere. It's designed to go to all the places. And this, and this brings me to this last piece here. And that is this, that we are invited on the basis of this first command to give the Lord the highest place, the place of highest honor in our lives. And I am making this known straight out. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and what is right in his eyes and his righteousness. And all of these other things will fall into their proper place. You know, um, Look, quickly, look at the second quotation, real fast, all right? It is not necessary to worship the sun, the moon, and the stars to break this law. We break it whenever we give to something or someone other than God himself the first place in our thoughts or our affections. It may be some engrossing sport, some absorbing hobby, or selfish ambition. It, it may be someone whom we idolize. We may worship a god of gold and silver in the form of safe investments, which we've seen how safe those investments really are, and a healthy bank balance, or a god of wood and stone in the form of property, and possessions. None of these things is necessarily wrong in and of itself. It only becomes wrong when we give it the place in our lives which belongs only to God, which is my, our way of saying the blessings of life, listen, are not meant to be worshipped. They're meant to lift our eyes in gratitude to God who not only gave us the ability to enjoy them, but loved us enough to give himself for us. Listen, if the first part of this command is, and we'll just think of it like, and you know All these commands can almost be thought of as a coin with two sides. I don't have one on me, so we have, this is it, all right? And if one side, one side of that coin says, thou shalt not have any gods before me, that's one side. But the other side says this, and it was the right side that it landed on. It says, yes, one says you have no other gods before me, but the other side says this, you get me. I give you me. I give you me. Forever. And I've given, my, given you me, and I hung on a cross between two thieves. I can give no more. I give you everything. I give you my love. Jesus, it was said in John, beautifully, poetically. Having loved them, he loved them unto the end. And the end brought new beginning for all of us. We will love the Lord. Now, the last... The last piece.
piece here is the song that we're sharing. Quickly, I keep saying quickly. Um, my grandfather, who I loved and who was my mentor and who's been gone now for many years, uh, taught me a lot about loving God. He had an interesting past because he, he had been mixed up in some pretty dangerous uh, criminal activity. <laughs> he came to the Lord. It changed everything. Um, his friends, his associates told him, it's just a phase. He'll be back. But he never went back. One day he, he started to have a um, feeling that he was supposed to share his story, and he started to do that. And eventually, as the years went by, he ended up in this city. And he and a few families had this decision to want to try to start a church, a little church somewhere in a house. But it all went back to that from my mind. And part of what we're sharing even right now is connected to that decision. I don't think any of us are ever on an isolated island. That's the truth, and certainly not in faith. But the fact is, his friends told him, your faith won't last. It'll, it'll, it's just a phase. But his love for God prevailed. And um, this first line of this song says that some say my faith is like wings made of wax, that it won't last. It's just going to melt. It's just a phase. It, that I'm just wasting my time. There are people who would say that about following the Lord. But that's not, that's not true. And God wants to fill us with a faith that will abide and a, and a love that will last. And if we are open, he is willing. The last thing I'll say, he is willing to be as involved in our life as we are willing to let him be. Lord, as we are here before you, I pray that you would stir our hearts towards the one true and living God. You said that you are the way, the truth, and the life that no one can come to the Father but through you. That the way to knowing God is through the bridge that has been given, the way of Christ. And Lord, you've given us your life so that we might have that life. And I pray that we would have a faith that abides, Lord, that as we move into the daylight, the gift of our days, that we would follow the Son, the real Son, all the days of our lives. And I ask that you would help us, Lord, to increasingly open up to you the areas of our lives that we're ashamed of, the places of our lives that we're afraid of, the aspects of our life, Lord, we've been hurt and we don't want to risk loving. Um, I pray that we would truly learn how to, how to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I suspect it's not a science as much as an art, Lord. And I pray that you would teach us to grow in our faith, in our capacity to integrate what we believe with the way in which we live. We thank you for your grace. I pray your blessing over our closing minutes here, Lord, our closing song, our closing time of giving. And we honor you in all that we do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.